I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, I am really looking forward to this chat because as a self-declared politics nerd and an American who hasn't lived there for a long time, I'm speaking to somebody who I greatly respect and actually uh, was introduced by a former employee of mine. So hello, Spencer, who helped me actually launch this podcast. He was one of my earliest co-producers and he passed along a really interesting human being and connected us. So thank you, Spencer. Big shout out to you, first of all. Spencer is definitely an all-star, no question about it. Yeah, we've already agreed. So I'll introduce the guy who's talking now very shortly, but we're we're co-presidents of the Spencer Roush fan club. So we'll make sure Spencer hears this because he's off doing amazing things in Washington, D.C. at the moment. But I'm about to launch into a fascinating discussion with Dan Schner, who is a professor at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications and the University of California, Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies. He's the founder of the USC LA Times statewide political poll. And as I've already mentioned, we were introduced by one of his former students and someone who co-produced this podcast from the start, Spencer Rush. So again, Spencer Rush fan club right here. Yay, hurrah. Yeah. <laughs> Dan has been teaching for a long time. He has been teaching courses in politics, communications and leadership at UC Berkeley since 1996 and USC since 2004. So he's seen a lot of political tides come in and out. Let's put it that way. He's also taught at the John F. Kennedy School of Government's Institute of Politics at Harvard and George Washington University's Graduate School of Political Management. So he previously worked on four presidential and three gubernatorial campaigns as one of California's leading political strategists. He served as the National Director of Communications for the 2000 presidential campaign of U.S. Senator John McCain and was the chief media spokesman for California Governor Pete Wilson. So some names there that you probably recognize if you have in any way paid attention to the news in the past 20 years. Dan has actually quite a clear angle on discomfort given his career trajectory. And that's why we're, we're speaking today, because he started working in Republican politics in 1984 on the Reagan re-election campaign. And as a young child who was very politically aware, that was actually the first political campaign I remember and had a big impact on my childhood. I'm just going to out myself to any listeners who might be surprised by this, but Ronald Reagan was kind of my childhood hero. I was a bit of a nerd as a child, but um, it was my first taste of politics. So it's an interesting collision of life trajectories here. But that work catapulted Dan to being one of the top Republican political strategists and campaign officials in the country. But then, despite his tremendous success, his high profile, his place within the Republican Party, he left in 2011. And we're going to talk about that. Because then to make it even more interesting, he didn't just cross the aisle and join the Democratic Party. He is now non-party affiliated, which is an interesting place to be in a country whose politics are very, very partisan and increasingly so. So I'm really fascinated to hear about the discomfort that that has brought, that the process of getting there has brought but also what freedom perhaps that has brought, because obviously this podcast is all about discomfort. So Dan is also busy outside of politics. He's been an advisor to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, among others, the Pew Charitable Trusts. The list goes on. I won't even go on and on. I'll put them in the show notes because Dan is seriously impressive. And I just want to start asking him questions. <laughs> and because we live in interesting times and no matter where you are when you're listening to this, you no doubt feel a bit anxious from time to time about politics, about democracy, about the state of the world. So I'm really looking forward to talking to someone who has 
a real insight into how politics in the United States run in particular, how party politics work, and has chosen to step out of that and has, I think, quite an overview and a, a nonpartisan view of that. So let's dive right in. I'm really, really excited to have you here, Dan. Welcome. See, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm really excited for the conversation. Well, I've kind of titled this tentatively something along the lines of forging your own path and staying true to yourself when everything shifts and shifts again. Because, I mean, you started working on a Reagan re-election campaign. You have seen so much shift and have quite an interesting perspective on politics and how things change and how things repeat themselves. And I'm really fascinated to hear that because, as I've said, you know, to listeners, wherever you are, there's going to be something that you can relate to, because if you're feeling uncertain, um, things will continue to change. So here's to finding your own alignment and footing in the midst of that. So I always ask the same first question, and that is, what is an uncomfortable moment? Just one, ideally, that has shaped who you are and what you've ended up doing in the world? Boy, that's a great question. And I can't even fathom how many different uncomfortable moments I could point to. But I guess the rule of the game is to pick out, to pick out just one, huh? It's the first challenge. <laughs> you can have two if you really want, but, you know, go uh, for I'll, it. I'll, 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 I'll start with one. Um, going way, way back. Um, when I was a college undergraduate, I was not particularly academically motivated. Um, I was involved in a range of extracurricular activities. I'd gotten involved politically, but was not paying a lot of attention to academics. And it caught up with me. And I was asked to leave my first school. And that was certainly a very uncomfortable moment. And I went back home with my tail in between my legs. And ultimately, what I came to realize, um, with the help of some very smart people, including a very smart but not particularly happy father, um, is that there was an opportunity, too. And not, it was obviously a horrible failing and a horrible shortcoming. But rather than wallowing in it, and rather than simply returning to old failed behaviors, seeing it instead as an opportunity. And I had developed an interest in politics during my first couple of years of college. And I thought, well, if you want to go be in, if you want to be an actor, you go to Hollywood. If you want to be in finance, you go to Wall Street. And so if you want to be in politics, you go to Washington. And rather than getting involved in a campaign in my own home community, uh, where some of those bad behaviors might re uh, reemerge. I packed up my car with all my clothes and my typewriter. And Betsy, for those in your generation, a typewriter is sort of like an iPad. You just don't have to plug it in before before you use it. Bless you for thinking I'm that young. I learned to type <laughs> on a, a proper typewriter, so I'm with well, you. Childhood uh, idol Ronald Reagan uh, made feel, that phrase made me feel very old. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, and I and I went to and I, and I went to Washington D.C. and longer story to follow perhaps today or at another time or not, but decided that I was going to take advantage of this opportunity that presented been presented to me, and then turn it into something which ended up being very defining for me. Wow, I love that. I think you make it sound probably easier than it was because probably being a young man of what, 2021 20, at that point, that's, that's a lot of maturity actually to kind of pull yourself together and redirect yourself and actually focus. But what were some of the moments that were involved in getting to that? Did you sort of go sit in your parents' basement and drink beer or like, what did that feel like to return home like that? And and then what what were some of the steps in that redirection? Because I'm sure it wasn't as, you know, now it's a very easy story to tell. But as a 20 year old, that must have been. I, I, I didn't mean to sound that easy. So I'm sorry. <laughs> you way. tell it with ease. But let's yeah, let's dig into the crunchy stuff. I did come back home and moved back into my old room 
And a few of my friends from high school were still in town, those who had not gone off to college and were still finding their own way. And very quickly saw those old behaviors emerging. And again, I want to uh, give my dad a great deal of credit because while he was certainly not happy about it, um, and in fact was fairly stern about the whole thing, he did help me understand that simply coming back to my comfort zone was not going to help achieve a different type of outcome. And while Washington was a fairly dramatic shift, I don't know if that was maturity. I think a, a more mature person could have made that those behavioral shifts without making such a pronounced geographic change. But for me, if I was going to do something differently, I needed to do it differently somewhere else. Mm. And hence the, uh, hence the, hence the move to Washington. Yeah. I'm such a big believer in sometimes you just need to throw yourself into a completely different context in order oh. to break up with things or explore things. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I certainly didn't have the, self-awareness, let alone understanding um, at that time. But looking back at it, I think it was very formative for me, not just professionally, but helping me to come to understand and appreciate uh, the benefits of taking risks. Mm. And, you know, you, in that very flattering introduction, you mentioned that I teach courses in politics, communications, and in leadership. And one of the main principles that I try to get across in the leadership class that I teach is that leaders take risks mm. and leaders fail. There's a, a wonderful book by the legendary UCLA basketball coach, the late John Wooden, called his, his uh, Wooden on Leadership. And each chapter title is a different lesson. And my favorite title of the entire book is uh, the coach said, my best players made the most mistakes. Mm. That's a great quote. Isn't it phenomenal? Yeah. And of course, the point is, uh, if you don't take risks, nothing bad is going to happen. But if you don't take risks, nothing good is going to happen either. And I don't think I understood at age 20 how much of a risk it was to drive off to Washington. And I certainly didn't know how much of a risk it was to stay my first few nights in a hotel in a fairly dodgy part of town. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, Washington, D.C. has its moments of being um, not the safest place you could stay. My dad is a basketball coach and a big fan of John Wooden, so I'm glad glad you brought that up. That resonates. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so I I do spend a lot of time talking with my students about the importance Mm. of of risk-taking. And I feel that this generation, for all its skills and all its gifts and all its potential, these these younger millennial and Gen Zers uh, really have become somewhat risk-averse. And so that's become something that I really try to impress on the on the Spencers of the world. Yeah. And I wonder why do you think they have become risk averse? It's sort of an aside, but yeah, because I, I teach 20, 21 year olds as well. And yeah. it's just such a different generation that I'm I'm trying to get my head around it. But what do you think? So I have I have I have I have two theories. Um one is just the point in history in which they happen to come of age. If you come of age during a great recession or a pandemic, it's understandable that just like my grandparents' generation was very risk averse throughout their lives, given their experience with the Great Depression. It's not surprising that those who grew up in more challenging circumstances might be somewhat more risk averse. The other, I feel, and obviously you and I deal with a very select group of this generation. Yeah, these are young people who've chosen to attend college, which is, you know, is actually the minority of of young people in this in this country. But I feel like the college admissions process has become so extended and so hyper competitive that we wring the risk out of them through that college application process. They realize that the way they get into the school of their choice is not by taking risks, but by doing exactly what they're supposed to do and in, in towing the line. And so once they get onto a campus, helping them unlearn that tendency is, is doable, but there's certainly an additional challenge. 
That's a really good point. I was reading actually today because, you know, we're recording this in December 2022. So it's the time of year when you hear about all of the new dictionary editions and the Collins Dictionary has just added the word perma crisis. So it's this thing that is just it's in the air, it's in the awareness and and the age of the students we currently teach is yeah, one that's come of age and if they, they've lost two years of their undergrad experience and done it all online, which means a lot of them haven't really participated that much because it's boring, but they're, you know, suffering big mental health issues and they've been isolated and it's just had a, a weird impact because it's such a formative age when, you know, you spread your wings and most of them have been at home still. And I can see how that would definitely impact the attitude to risk. So yeah, thanks for the little analysis. But it's also a nice segue into something I wanted to ask, which is the the risk that you took in actually going from something you were well known for in, in an institution, a Republican party, and leaving. I mean, that must have been incredibly uncomfortable and risky. But what what led to that? I mean, it's probably a very long story, so feel free to take us there. How, how, what led you out of the Republican Party? What was the risk? What was the discomfort? Go for it. Well, first of all, it, it took me a long time. I spent years pondering it before I actually took that step. Look, people don't like change. And for people who are somewhat successful in their pursuits, Definitely don't like change. I like to say everyone's a victim of their own success. And so the, yeah, the, the inherent obstacle is that this was working for me. It had you know, been of great benefit to me professionally. And it had become a part of my identity. And so not just making a professional shift but changing the way that you identified yourself to other people was a big step. And luckily for me, by the time I made that shift, I was no longer as active politically as I had been when I was younger. So it wasn't as fundamental a piece of my identity as it might have been 10 years earlier, which is probably why it took so many years to do. But uh, ultimately, uh, I watched... Uh, the party that I had joined, move further and further rightward. Um, from the beginning, I'd actually been sort of a, uh, a center-right Republican, and there was always a very powerful conservative wing of the party, which I respected, but agreed with on some things and not on others. And as that wing of the party moved further and further right, I realized that, uh, you know, particularly on issues that had become important to me, it was no longer something uh, there's no longer uh, a party with, of which I could remain a member. And of course, at the same time that the Republican Party was moving further and further rightward, the Democratic Party was moving further and further to the left. Mm. So all sorts of my friends and family members who welcomed my departure to the, from the Republican Party couldn't figure out why I didn't choose the Democratic Party and explain the same thing that had caused me to leave one was what prevented me from joining the other. Here in California, independents are known as no party preference voters, mm -hmm. which I think is unfortunately pejorative. It yeah. Makes it sound like we don't care. But whether we call ourselves NPP or independents, uh, it is it's very liberating to no mm -hmm. longer have to answer for things that you no longer believe. Hmm. So did it, did it spring from, okay, hypothetical question. Did it spring from more an evolution of you or did it come from your being really sure about your values and staying aligned with those? And then the party kind of moved away from you or was it a bit of both? I imagine it's a bit of both. Boy, that's a, that's a really good question. I think it is a bit of both. And I would add a, I would add a third as well. So on one hand, no question, the party did move rightward. Uh, second, there were particular issues, and I can come back to those in a moment, that had become more important to me. So being in disagreement with uh, one party or the other became more important. Um, and third, I think 
like many of us, as you get older, I'm becoming more secure in myself and realizing that I no longer needed to be part of that club in order to feel a sense of, of self-worth. And even though, you know, we're, we're a tribal species, even though we all like being part of tribes, the downside had begun to outweigh uh, the, the benefits of feeling that sense of inclusion. It's interesting because, I mean, I have friends in multiple countries who are very active in parties. They stand as candidates for parliament or, you know, house house seats or local councils or whatever. And I've been I've been wooed by several parties in different countries that I've lived in. Um, and yeah, I obviously grew up in a very Republican family. I'm from Wyoming. There isn't really much of another party there. And uh, the first thing I did after I lived outside the U.S. when I was 21, I, I lived in the Czech Republic for I took a, a year off from university. And in 2000, which was an interesting time to live in Central I, Europe. I, I uh, thought going to Washington was dramatic. Look at you. <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm from Wyoming and I'm from a very conservative family. I had to do dramatic. I had to make a big, big ge geographical change. So the first thing I did when I moved back from the Czech Republic was um, change my party affiliation. And in Wyoming, you can be a registered independent, but you don't get to vote in the primaries, which stinks because it means by the time you get to, to vote in you know the presidential election or whatever, the party system has decided your options for you. And so it's it's a really crappy option because it it kind of renders you a bit voiceless. But at the same time, like I totally understand because I love politics. I have worked in public affairs most of my career. There's always been an element of influencing policy, a lot of working with politicians, although I have established my career in the UK. So it's a very different system, but not all that different. But leaving a party is a bit, I mean, it's, it's an ideology that you probably felt aligned with at some point, as well as a career. So it's not just like resigning from your job. It's a lot deeper than that, isn't it? It's about you signed up for a reason. You got involved for probably some ideological reasons. So how did it feel to then kind of break up with that? Like, what was the feeling when you finally made the decision? Well, again, in the interest of at least some humility, it was not nearly as jarring as it would have been if I had done it 10 years earlier. So at that point, um, I was no longer doing professional political work. So it wasn't as jarring. But again, going back to what I was saying earlier, um, we cling to various identities. That's what identity politics is. And all of a sudden, identifying yourself is something different than what you become accustomed to presenting yourself as. It does take some adjustment. And once again, I, I watch this with students, particularly as they approach graduation. Yeah, they're worried about their jobs and their careers, of course. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that even if they don't know exactly what it's going to be, they're fairly confident they're going to find some way of, of, of making a living. But it is, for the first time in 16 years, a very dramatic change in identity. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a change in career, but it's, it's a little bit more than that, because I find people who have been very involved in party politics and worked for campaigns and things. There is an element of personal values in it and personal identity, but it's interesting what you say about the transition. You had a long period of time to think about it, to transition out of actively working in politics. So yeah, then you I, left I made the party. The, I, I made, no question. I made the tra professional transition before I made the identity transition. Yeah. It would have been a lot more dramatic if you'd just been like, I'm out of here. Bye. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, what would you say to somebody listening? Because we're, we're, oh, wow, we always live in interesting times, but so many people are finding that their professional life no longer aligns with the personal values that they've now discovered. They really want to live in the world. And the pandemic and working from home has really been an interesting one that I found just mashed people's lives together so much. They realized they didn't want to live those two parts of their lives separately anymore. So a lot of people are probably facing a similar decision or they're going through the similar should I leave my job? Should I change sectors? Should I do something that I feel matters more in the world or aligns more with who I am? So how 
Well, what pieces of advice would you give to people as they go through that process from your own experience? Well, I, I saw an interview with Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, the Amazon founder, the other Washington Post owner earlier this year. And he was talking about decisions. Uh, he was talking about decisions in the context of being a CEO. And I listened and applied what he was saying to career based decisions. But what, what he said, and I thought it was really well put because it's something I've been thinking about and trying to articulate for many years. He said, there's two kinds of decisions in the world. There's two way doors and there's one way doors. And he said, most decisions are two way doors. If you walk through them and it turns out not to be what you expected, you walk right back through it. And you're a week or a month or a year older and on you go with your life. So it's not that big of a deal. And he said, I try to focus my attention on the one-way doors because those are the decisions you can't walk back through or are very, very difficult to. And he said, most people, because they're so caught up in the two-way doors, don't pay nearly as much attention to the one-way doors, to the one-way decisions. Oh, I love that. But if you apply that to careers, it makes all sorts of sense because by definition, almost every job, I mean, medical school, clergy, Otherwise, just about every job is a two-way door. Mm. And you walk through that door, and if it ends up not being what you want, you stay for a year unless there's some you know, moral or physical danger. And then you know, you're 30 instead of 29, or 40 instead of 39, or 50 instead of 49, and you still have years and years left. And the fact that you spend one year exploring something that ended up not being the true north you know, isn't that big a deal. And once again, this is a conversation I have with graduating seniors endlessly. And I'm fairly certain I had it with Spencer, even though he was finishing a graduate school program when I met him. I said, okay, you're not making a career decision. You don't need a 10-year plan or a five-year plan. Say, what am I going to do between now and next summer? If you like what you're doing, you do it for another year. And if not, well, then you're, in his case, 26 instead of 25. You still got 60, 65 years left. So what's the big deal? And I think the Bezos formulation of the two-way doors is just a really, really good way of lowering the stakes yeah. and making the risks we were talking about earlier seem much less risky. I love that. I was literally having this conversation on Monday with a student who, you know, is is about to finish her master's degree and is torn about should I apply for PhD programs? What if I don't want to go into academia? Does it make it harder to get into business? And and now I'm going to take that Bezos advice and talk about two-way doors because I said, it doesn't really matter. You know, like it, whatever you are passionate about is what you're probably going to do best. And there are no wrong decisions. If it doesn't work for you, you pivot and you try something else. And it's not like doors are permanently closed to you. And I also think there is that perspective of age, isn't there, where that one year of your life becomes less and less of a proportion of your years, the older you get, like a year is a big deal when it's one fifth of your life and you're five years old. But when you're <laughs> 65, you know, it's just like, ah, it was just a year. I've had 64 others. So it is just, yeah, I think helping people to be like, focus on the one way doors, because they're probably aren't nearly as many of those as there are two-way doors. So it kind of takes the pressure off to be like, eh, if it doesn't work, you can come back through. But what are the decisions that you can't come back from and put real focus and energy into those? That's great advice, Dan. And I love that. Well, and I think it's just as valid for people in their 30s and 40s and 50s as those just getting out of school. Mm. Yeah, there might not be quite as many years left but it's still only a year. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, it was so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what I, I tell them is yeah. I said, look, I said, some people marry their high school sweethearts, but most of us have to bump around a little bit before we find the right answer. Why would a job be any different? Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think this is one thing I do think this generation, having seen a couple of recessions now in a pandemic, you know, the, those who are just about to graduate from undergrad or master's, they kind of have got the memo more than say my people graduating when I graduated did that like you can glide around you don't and that you don't graduate into your dream job that there is such a thing as lateral moves you know you can try something out and then work your way into something that gets you closer to your dream job but it's sort of like 
I feel like in some ways they're perhaps a little less entitled to their dream job because I wouldn't say they're cynical necessarily, but they have maybe a little slightly more realistic view of how the world works and and are confronted with some of the challenges that we are collectively going through in terms of, you know, issues like climate and social inequality and all of that stuff. But I don't know, you know, sort of I'm coming from a very narrow narrow experience of Gen Z right now because I teach at a private university in Spain. So that is self-selecting as well. But it's it's just interesting to sort of think. I mean, I am I am so enriched by the perspective I gain from them. And it gives me hope because their their normal is actually quite a lot more resilient than, you know, the normal of say Gen X, which is my older sister's generation, who kind of had it pretty sweet. You know, they sort of came of age, graduated from college in the 90s, and it was just like, life was pretty good. And it started to crumble just after I graduated. So I kind of beat the wave a little bit. But I think about the resilience that they might have as a result. And it kind of gives me hope because it's it's an interesting generation. So Gen Z, if you're out there listening to this, we kind of love you. I look at you with with hope and inspiration because I learn a lot. I I, I do as well. And there's a there's a, a wonderful book written right before the turn of the century um, called Generations, and the book posits you're, you're not in so you're familiar, so you know you know you know this Betsy. The book posits that there are only four generations in history, and they just keep repeating themselves. Yep. And the first of those four generations is a crisis generation. And I've told my students in the last few years, you are this crisis generation, I said, but I'll tell you, the last crisis generation was the one that came of age during the Great Depression, World War II. For all the reasons you're talking about, Betsy, the resilience, mm. they ultimately became known as the greatest generation. Yeah. And so I, I share your hope in these young people. And I will point to history for evidence that the generation that leads a society out of a crisis is one that is really exceptional is it, by definition is, is it, it has to be really exceptional yeah and it really leads straight back to the topic of discomfort doesn't it because it's that idea that you know smooth seas don't make good sailors Precisely. those those who have had to navigate the choppiest times are the beasts they're the ones who can handle pretty much anything and we live in a time where you know people are being trained to be more emotionally aware. Because I think about, you know, grandparents' generation, the greatest generation, the Depression era, World War II. And I think about their ability to express emotion was perhaps not their strongest point. You know, it's sort of stiff upper lip, don't talk about the hard stuff, just get on with it. But now actually we have, you know, I teach mindfulness and I incorporate that a lot into my work with leaders and just being conscious and mindful and knowing what's going on in your own body and your own emotions and owning that and being quite emotionally mature rather than just pushing the reality of emotions away and just thinking, oh, that's weakness. So I actually think that those who go through these crises now and come of age in that alongside having this great dose of consciousness that we are starting to grow, I think, as a culture are going to be incredible because they'll have that resilience, but they'll also have been therapized and have a more mindful, conscious approach to how things all fit together and, and how to navigate stuff like that. So I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I hope it is, but that's what I well, think. And I think that's a very important point also. You know, the, you know, there's the, the famous Mark Twain quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Oh, I love cool. that. I've not heard that one. Oh, uh, Absolutely. One, 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 one of my absolute favorites. And you make the right point, which is they might develop the same resilience because of this crisis, just like their great grandparents did. But that doesn't mean that it has to be an identical experience in the types of traits that you're talking about, expressiveness, self-awareness that might not have existed in the early half of the 20th century. Are additional tools that are available to this generation as they as they move forward. Mm. I think about their ability to advocate for themselves, and part of what I teach in my my undergrads is advocacy, self advocacy, because it's just such an important thing. And I think actually, I was reading something today about 
Gen Z in the workplace. I love that this is turning into a conversation about Generation Z, but they have, they, they stand up for themselves. They are perhaps more able to draw boundaries than I've been comfortable with for sure. And it's, it's interesting because I think it will, it will change culture. It will change institutions of government. It will change employee employers and culture at work because they're like, no, you don't get to abuse me. You don't get to exploit me. I don't trust you. So I'm not going to vote for you. And I'm going to talk about it on social media. So I'm wondering what that's going to end up doing to say institutions of government, institutions of democracy, what we expect from say political parties and politics. So let's kind of drive it back to politics. I think it makes it more horizontal. And if you couple the attitudinal changes that you're talking about with technological changes, Mm. which give every, which, which give every citizen a much greater platform than's ever been the case in world history, add those two together. And I think you have a much less hierarchical system in place. Now, there's a downside of that. They say democracy is the least efficient form of government. But I do think that the best leaders, whether in politics or in other sectors, are those who just by necessity are going to have to learn how to be more collaborative because the the millennials and Gen Z years that we're talking about are much less likely to follow a leader who says, because I said so. Mm. That brings us to an interesting point that is, well, it can be easy to kind of get mired and commiserating about how bipolar politics in places like the United States have become, you know, how just viciously partisan. But if you sort of layer onto that, what you've just said about this sort of, I mean, I have a nephew who's 31 and he's in the U.S. Navy. And we've had little chats about how he's just really craving less division and less of a sort of America first. You know, he's interested in moving outside the United States when his tour of duty is over because he's just interested in being somewhere that's more communal and sort of kinder in its politics and rhetoric. And so I wonder what you see from your perspective on, you know, the sort of the changes in American politics in particular, U.S. politics in particular, how you think that things, you know, how do these two things fit together? Sort of this, I think I agree, general craving for connection and community and transparency and less of a sort of hierarchical approach and higher expectations for what we get from politicians and, you know, leaders in any sector. So how does that, how does that go with the division, the rise of populist politics? Cause I think it's really easy to just stare into the abyss and get a little bit overwhelmed, but we're talking about hopefulness kind of. So yeah. What do you think the, the, what's the truth there? What's going to happen next? I- I mean, I, first of all, I don't know that this is a uniquely a uniquely American characteristic. No, definitely um, not. We've seen extraordinary polarization and hyperpartisanship, um, and division in countries around the world. It doesn't mean that your nephew can't find somewhere that makes more sense for him. But if he's looking for a country that doesn't have those, those things, I'm afraid he's probably going to be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, be dealing with them differently than we are. Yeah. But I, I, I think that, you know, that, that, that's, that's the real challenge for us. I, I assign uh, two books to my classes each semester on this topic. One is called Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist. And the other is simply called Them. And it's by Ben Sass, the soon-to-be former senator uh, who's going to be the president of the University of Florida. And the joke in class is they're the same book, one written from a progressive by a progressive journalist, the other written by a conservative politician. But they both talk um, about these trends toward polarization and hyperpartisanship. And while they don't offer magic solutions, then getting people to at least be aware that this is something that we're doing to ourselves is the first step toward figuring out toward figuring out solutions. In other words, if you don't think there's anything unusual about this, there's much less incentive to do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I totally agree. I have so many friends from various countries who are, you know, 
Sweden has just elected a far-right government. Poland has elected a far-right government. I mean, we're seeing it so many places. And I, I'm i kind of excited about it. Okay, excited might not be the word, but I think the faster people wake up out of alarm that these things are happening, the unthinkable is happening in places like, you know, you always hold Sweden up as this bastion of sort of socialized equality, blah, blah, blah. And it's a real wake-up call to get active, to not be passive if you want to live in a democracy, because it does require upkeep. It does require tending. It does require being actively involved. So precisely, I I, I always like to say that politics is too important to be left to the politicians. Mm. They have a professional imperative in any system at exaggerating those divisions because it can work to their benefit. And so the more of the rest of us who get involved and stay involved, the less determinative that attitude needs to be. I wish I could remember who said it because, you know, sort of, I I live in Europe. I've lived outside the United States for almost 20 years now. So like, while keeping up with American politics, I I have existed mostly in a, a British political system and, and also European political systems. And so people like to talk about the United States and talk about, you know, red states versus blue states. And I can't remember who said it. And they basically said the United States is a collection of purple states. You know, it's not as divided as is portrayed. And I can definitely say that that's true. And granted, I'm from Wyoming. It's three electoral votes. I've never, that's tiny, by the way, if you're listening to this and you don't know, California has how many electoral votes? Forgotten. Uh, 52. Yeah. So there you go for comparison. And it's never gone to anything but a Republican presidential candidate. So on paper, it's, you know, the sort of red beating heart middle bit of America. But I know a lot of people who have some pretty progressive views on things you wouldn't expect from cowboys. So it's, you know, it's sort of like, don't don't sign up to believing in the rhetoric. Don't sort of self-flagellate or get despairing, no matter what country you're listening to this in, because the headlines are never as bad as the reality, in my experience, when you get down to real people. But at the oh same time, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> That's the, I think that last point, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just sort of erupted. I think your last point is just such an important one. Yeah, we like to say, yeah, I did public relations work for many years, first in politics and then in other sectors. I always like to say they never do play, stories on all the planes that land safely. Yeah. Exactly. So by definition, the news is going to look for conflict and for controversy. And it's really easy to get sucked up in that because they're never going to do stories or very rarely going to do stories about the thousands of million you know, tiny acts of kindness that make a society function. Mm. And it's up to us to, I know this sounds a little bit hokey, but it's up to us to remember, to remember them and to respect them and to, and to duplicate them. That's how society functions. Is, has the news gotten worse as the news cycle has gotten so much more manic? There are so many more channels to feed. It's 24 hours. And it does feel like the negative media, the negative bias of the media has gotten so much more intense because it there's more competition to get subscribers because very few of us pay for news anymore. And they're all kind of fighting for survival. And so if you make more fantastic headlines and sort of I don't know, feed that natural fear that can arise so easily when people feel under threat, but then they want to consume more. It kind of becomes this addictive cycle and it's fed by negativity. Do you think that's a thing? I I don't know that the media is more negative, but it's faster Mm. and there's more of, and there's more news generally. So if there's, if the larger news pie is much larger, then naturally the amount of negative information is going to be that much larger also. That said, though, and I think we, you know, while the media and and social media deserve some uh, place in this conversation, I think it's worth remembering that the media is a tool. It's a means to an end. And this is human nature. So the algorithms that Meta and Google and all the rest use uh, to funnel us device of content is them giving us what we want. And there was a phenomenal study done in the last presidential campaign that said a candidate's tweet that mentioned their opponent 
was twice as likely to be retweeted as one that mentioned themselves. So go ahead and blame Twitter for making it easier. But, you know, as humans, you know, this, this, we are, you know, we're always more drawn to carrots, to sticks than to carrots. Uh, for any parent who's ever attempted to get a child to clean up their room by telling them what a wonderful kid they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one. We're hardwired like, this way. I want to put that on a plaque and just call it out and be like, the negative news cycle is us. It's giving us what we want. These algorithms are based on giving us more of what we want. But you're right. The media is us. And particularly things like social media, you know, Twitter, et cetera. It's us. And there is an inclination toward negativity. And, and there's something kind of addictive about things that make us anxious because it just sucks us in. And it's, it's obviously related to our sort of evolutionary biology to survive. So we're kind of drawn to the scary stuff and obsess about that stuff more than the nice stuff. But I, I actually have signed up to something and I get it in my inbox quite regularly called nice news. So if anybody wants to, it's wonderful. So if anybody wants to just have a little dose of like, Hey, what's going on in the world that is going to make you feel good? Sign up to Nice News. It's US-based, so it does have a little bit more US news than global news. But things like there's a girl in Los Angeles, a 10-year-old girl who wrote to the local, um, I can't remember which department of government was, to apply for a unicorn license because she knew as a responsible pet owner, she would need to have a license for a unicorn if she could find one. And it was just beautiful. So they sent her, they made her a unicorn license and they sent her a stuffed unicorn to hold her over until she found her own unicorn. And then as a responsible unicorn owner, they were like, you must feed it glitter once a week, but it needs to be biodegradable and non-toxic. And it was just this beautiful story. And you're just like, how good is the world? How good are people? You know, I just, I think we all need to remember that it is our responsibility to find our counterbalance to the narratives that freak us out. Because they're out there. You find what you look for. You know, we all have confirmation bias. And so you find what you look for. And if you want to be taken down and stare into the abyss and just believe that we're all screwed, you're going to find that. But if you want to remember that people are fascinating and kind and just diverse and complex, you're going to find that too. So I think it's our responsibility in this tsunami of information in which we exist to really check ourselves and our sources. And also, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how, how do you set up um, sort of an intake for yourself of information that keeps you uncomfortable so that you don't fall into a partisan bubble that just, you know, you talked about them. The books that you assign are a really good example of this. Of Step outside your bubble and look at other perspectives and remember that we're all kind of the same at the end of the day. So what would you say to people about like curating your sources of information and the things upon which you base your opinions? I get a version of that question very regularly uh, when I give speeches, but not uh, nearly as thoughtfully as, as you just put it. The way you normally hear the question, Betsy, is someone saying, where can I go for true, reliable, unbiased news? <laughs> so that you really stripped it down to its, its core from your, your broader but framing is key there, because like, who's yeah. saying it's true? Who's saying it's like, according yeah. to whom? Well, yeah. and, and I asked them, I said, I'm going to answer your question. But first, I need you to answer a question for me. They say, sure, what is it? And I said, who's your magic friend? They said, what do you mean? And I said, who's the friend who you only go to restaurants that they recommend? You only buy clothes that they think are good ideas. You only go to movies or watch TV shows that they tell you that you should. That you take their advice on absolutely everything. And I said, of course, the answer is we don't. We take in input from a range of sources, from a range of friends and acquaintances and media, and we form our own conclusion based not on one source, but on many. I said, why would you hold the news to a higher standard than that? So there is no magic news source any more than there's a magic friend. The point is to uh, expose yourself to an array of information sources, just like you do when you're trying to decide whether to try a new restaurant or not. And at the end of every semester, last day of class, I did this at, at Berkeley uh, last week and at USC the week before. I tell them, I said, I'm going to give you one last assignment this semester. 
And I said, I can't grade this, but it's the most important assignment I'm going to have given you all year long. And the assignment is as follows. I said, I want every principled conservative in this class to watch Rachel Maddow. I used to say once a week. Now I say once a month when, when she's on. And I said, and I want every principled progressive in this class to read George Will or Brad Stevens or Ross Douthat once a week or once a month. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm just trying to remind you that there's really smart people over on the other side too. And it's really easy. Uh, Sass in his book, he calls it nut picking as opposed to nitpicking. Mm. You find the nuttiest person over on the other side and say, oh, I can never work with them. Look at what freaks they are. But there's really smart people over there too. Mm -hmm. And a regular reminder of those, that there are smart people who might just not happen to agree with you on everything is a really good way to keep your information flow more, more balanced and more open. Yeah. Cause we live in such a strange time of, uh, let's not even get started on cancel culture, but just this sort of painting everything with such a broad brush of like, okay, I disagree with that one thing. So all of what you say, all of what you do is no longer okay. And there are people who are, you know, frankly, vile in their approach to propagandizing or spreading information that is actually aimed at kind of dividing people and harming others. But there are people who just disagree with you who have come to that conclusion for very good reasons. And it's worth asking why. And it's worth considering. It's like having a partner that you don't always agree with. And like, think about that. If you've ever had a partner or you're in a relationship, do you agree with your partner all the time? But you don't just cancel them when you disagree with them. Hopefully. You listen to them and you ask why. Not only do I agree with you completely, Betsy, but I broaden it. And every other aspect of our life was willing to do this. Mm -hmm. In relationships, with families, in businesses, you don't always agree with your business, your, with your, with your colleagues, but yet you continue to work with them. For some reason in politics, we think that once we disagree with someone, we have to, uh, yeah, we, we, we have to exclude them. And how does, yeah, because I just think about ecosystems and communities and societies that are actually, well, even the gene pool, it's stronger when you work with people who are different from you. You have greater perspective. You have somebody who spots risk that you couldn't spot because they see things differently. So it actually makes us all more robust. It makes society stronger. It makes us better able to deal with crises and change, right? And when we kind of exclude those ideas and perspectives that we disagree with, we weaken ourselves. And I think that's what we forget, right? You're, you're exactly right. But the challenge is what we've just described is human nature. Mm. It's only mm -hmm. human nature to want to spend time. Look, I want to spend time with the smartest people in the world. Who are the smartest people in the world? They're the people who agree with me. Yeah. They're always going to remind me of how smart I am and how right I am. And coming back all the way around full circle, breaking out of that ideological igloo is uncomfortable. Yeah. That's profound discomfort. Being willing to listen to people who are going to tell you you're wrong is a huge risk. It's very, discom it's very discomforting. But your analysis is exactly right. If you don't do it, you don't just not grow. You just shrink. Yeah. And it's so easy to do because it is comfortable, but it doesn't mean it's good for you just because it's comfortable. If anybody's been in a truly good relationship, you know, it's challenging <laughs> and you have to deal with the discomfort of being like, okay, I love this person, but I kind of want to like punch them right now because I so strongly disagree with what they're saying. And then you calm down and you realize actually there's probably some truth in what they say and we have to find a way forward together. And then you become stronger in your relationship. So you're right. How does that not make sense in every context? But it takes consciousness. Yeah. But it is human nature to gravitate to your favorite cable network or your favorite yeah. podcast. Yeah. Because you're never going to be challenged. You're only going to be reassured at how smart yeah. you are. It also seems that, I mean, I know I, when I sit down to watch something on, you know, my laptop or the TV or whatever, I think of it as entertainment. I think of it as downtime. But actually what that means is I kind of let myself off the hook of working at it. And so, you know, I very carefully curated my social media feed to challenge me. And so I do it like it's my job. But when I'm watching something, I want to watch something that's easy for me. And I think that's probably something that leads to us 
seeking out the sources of information that aren't challenging, that are easy to consume because we, that we agree with them. So I almost think maybe it's a challenge to put out there to listeners. It's like when you have something on that could create an opinion or inform you one way or the other, think of it as work, not downtime, not entertainment, because it's a different box and you need to be prepared to work at it and be critical and seek out things that make you uncomfortable. And it's probably going to make you stronger. And then eventually you start to enjoy that kind of quote unquote work as well, where you're challenged by a different perspective and opinion, et cetera. Yeah. Just a thought. But, sure, but, but here's the challenge. How do you deliver that message without it turning into a sort of an eat your vegetables admonition? Do this because instead of do yeah. this because it's for you, do this because you're going to enjoy it. When you yeah. think you are. And do this because it's sort of like, it's like, watching a game show it's like watching jeopardy where you're like oh ooh, i know that answer i know that answer uh -huh. yeah and sort of think what are they going to say and how can i how can i make sense of that or do i agree with it do i not agree with it then give it as a game maybe so maybe it is entertainment but yeah i think don't be passive i guess is probably more an appropriate thing to say it's because you're not passive it's going into your subconscious and and confirming or challenging something a absolutely so I have a few final questions because I've only got okay. a little bit of time left with you. But I mean, those listening are in probably a range of countries. I've got a lot of listeners in the UK and the US and Australia, quite a few in Spain and for some reason, a few in Brazil and Greece. No idea why, but hello, folks. But everybody's aware of what's going on in their political context or probably aware. So what what keeps you going? What keeps you passionate about teaching politics and commenting on it and what can give others hope about the future of people and democracy and politics? Well, it's going to sound like sort of a circular answer, but I think the best way to have hope about people, the best or the, the, is to be with people. Mm. Yeah. You may, you made a great point earlier when you were talking in a political context about how all states, to some degree or another, are purple. Now, some are you know, reddish purple, some are bluish purple, but there's elements of both in every state. Well, there's elements of good and bad in every person. And again, it sounds a little you know, Pollyannish, but I think if you look for the good in people, you're more likely to find it. Mm -hmm. uh, and what keeps me going, since we're being Pollyannish, is I've learned belatedly, I wish I'd learned it decades earlier, how much enjoyment I get out of helping other people and what a huge dopamine rush that is. Mm. And so teaching and working with the students, both in, in and outside the classroom, not just to help them learn the academic material that we're covering but help them figuring out their next steps is something that energizes me tremendously. And that doesn't mean it's the answer for everyone, but I do think because we're a tribal species and because emotions are contagious, when you do something that helps put someone else in a better mood, mm. you're probably going to be in a better mood too. Amen. So what about the future of democracy, quote unquote, because we are in some crunchy times, but we've been in crunchy times before. What makes you a little bit alarmed and what still keeps you going and gives you hope? Well, what concerns me are the levels of division and, and divisiveness and intolerance. What gives me hope is that while it's not steady, and uninterrupted progress, we're moving in the right direction. I'll cite you a couple of, of poll numbers that I've seen recently. One of the polls shows that people in, in this country, in the US, are more likely to be interested in marrying or having a family member marry someone of a different race or ethnicity or religion than at any other, any other time in history. Or that the converse of that is fewer people would be uncomfortable, would be unhappy about that. Um, on the flip side, the number of people would be unhappy 
if someone they cared about was in a relationship with someone from the opposite political party, has skyrocketed. So we still otherize. We still do the them thing. And for most of human history, we have pointed to the other as someone different because they look different or talk different. Now we point to them as something different because they think different than we do. So it is a, it is an, it is a formidable challenge. It is a daunting challenge. But if you consider it in that broader trajectory of progress, the number of people in this country less likely to say, I don't want someone I care about to be involved in a relationship with someone from a different race or religion or ethnicity. So we're making progress on this. Hmm. I think the other point I'd make that makes me more encouraged goes back to the, the, the Mark Twain quote I shared with you earlier. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. We haven't been here before. Or so I'll say this another way. We haven't been here before. We've been here before. And one other book recommendation I'll offer, particularly for those of you in the U.S., but even for those, but also in other parts of the world, the American uh, historian John Meacham wrote a book a few years ago called The Soul of America. And his basic point is that these periods of division, such as those we're currently experiencing, have been part of our country's history since before we were a country. And the book is a chronicle about how we've overcome those period, we've come through those challenges and come through those difficult periods in the past. And I'll admit, when I first heard about the book, what I expected, what I expected was, you know, a good beats evil, Luke beats Darth. That's the way of the, the, the circle of life. Yeah. But the book is much better because it talks about how none of these previous successes were preordained or automatic. Mm. But they really do require work. Mm. And they do really include, it require leadership, not just from the Lincolns and the Kings, but from improbable everyday heroes who are willing to stand up. Uh. And I get to see those, that next generation of heroes in class every day. So that's what makes me optimistic. I love that because it is, it is really, truly empowering to remember that History has always been uncomfortable. We always seem to think we're living in the end of time and it's never been this bad, but we do live in a pretty cool era in which people are living longer and we're not dying of the same diseases we died of a hundred years ago and that we're going through a crunchy time in a lot of places, but that actually this is cyclical and it's it's really appropriate to be uncomfortable and you should be paying attention and you should be uncomfortable about the current moment we're going through in a lot of places. It's a transition moment to what do we want to happen next? And the answer is still in our hands in lots of ways. So to those listening, maybe we can leave them with that. What, what would you like to leave people with that kind of based on that? What's the the thing to chew on after they are finished with this episode? Um, is no one's going to do this for us. We can look for magic answers or magic news sources or magic leaders who will solve our problems for us, but it's not going to happen. Um, we solve them ourselves and we make happiness for ourselves. And I'll go back to uh, I'll go back to the, the, the two-way doors we were talking about earlier. Almost every decision is a two-way door. If you try something and it works, then keep doing it. If you try something and it doesn't work, you can stop doing it and do something else. I will say this, Betsy, I wish I'd been better prepared. I wish you had sent me this in advance so I could come up with something <laughs> more profound. But that, that was pretty profound, Dan. <laughs> very pedestrian answer nah. is, I think, the best I got. I um, loved it. I found it gripping, Dan. I'm glad but, I didn't prepare in advance because that was a good I, answer. But, 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 but I will add this to it. Um, and this gets back to the two-way doors and one-way doors also. For every decision, for every big decision, I ask myself, what's the best thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that can happen? Mm -hmm. And the overwhelming majority of the time, 
the worst thing that can happen isn't that bad. And so it's worth a try. I can't add anything to that. So we're going to end there because I want people to be able to pause on that, go away and chew on it. What's the worst that can happen? Because it's probably not that bad. Ah, oh, Dan, it's been juicy. It's been good. And I'm glad I didn't prepare you more because this was <laughs> a damn good conversation and such. It was spontaneous. It was philosophical. It was practical. It was fun. I can't you. tell you how much I enjoyed it, Betsy. Thank you so, so much. I have to send Spencer a thank you note too. Same, same. Well, I will ask you back periodically. We'll see. I'll be flattered. We might have to talk Spanish politics next. We'll both have to study up on that one. But <laughs> I will get ready. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your, yeah, your considered responses. But I just, yeah, I can't even begin to say how much I enjoyed this. So we'll have you back. Definitely. I really did too. I hope you have a very happy holiday season. And I really hope we can talk again before too long. We will. Definitely. Well, to those of you listening, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed this as much as I did. Thank you to Dan and reach out, send us both messages on Instagram, Twitter, wherever you want to be, because we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like the discomfort practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.